true or false? Facts or alternative facts? News or fake news? These days, our society is obsessed with what is true and what is not true. We spend so much of our time thinking about these things, and I'm not even going to bring up the topics of what we could sit here disagreeing about because for some of you, it will get your minds racing and you won't even hear the next 12 minutes of what we are trying to learn. But today, today we are going to concentrate not on any of those things, but on matters of eternal importance. Okay? Eternal importance. Because there's a lot of things that are out there that are distracting. And some of them are actually somewhat important, or maybe even very important, for our mortal lives. And we spend a lot of time thinking about them and cycling about them, discussing them, listening uh, and watching people talk about them and pontificate about them. But come on back. Come on back. We are going to today discuss things of eternal significance. Eternal significance. All right. Most of the topics that we obsess about are temporal. They're temporary. They will only last until the next news cycle or the next thing to get outraged about. But Peter, Peter, and therefore God, and hopefully therefore I, as one who doesn't speak my own ideas, but rather the ideas from the scriptures, and therefore hopefully also you are concerned with eternal matters. Okay? It just makes sense, because the longer your time frame, the better decisions that you make. If any of you invest in the stock market or in cryptocurrency or whatever like that, you know, you might know that there's, you know, it's pretty volatile. It, it goes up, it goes down, you're wondering whether to, to sell it or buy it or whatever, right? But if you could look at a very long time horizon and think to yourself, do I have enough by the time I stop earning an income and saving money through my investments over time? whether that for you is 40 years from now or four years from now or you're in the midst of it right now, do I have enough over a really long time horizon? That's really what you're more concerned about than whether it goes up by a few percentage points today or next week, isn't it? So we want to know about things that are eternal because the longer our time horizon, the better we have. So. That said, Peter and God speaking through him are very concerned with false teaching. True teaching and false teaching have eternal consequences. This is one of the main themes running throughout the letter of 2 Peter. Now, we're in the second chapter today, and chapter 2 is very dense. Okay? Some parts of scripture, you can read a paragraph or even a, a longer passage, get the main point, it's all quite clear maybe. But in chapter 2, you almost have to go phrase by phrase to really understand it. Okay? So I encourage you to follow along, reading the actual words as I read along with uh, you, and take notes. Okay? I have grown a lot intellectually and mentally, spiritually, by taking notes and remembering what it is that I have been taught from this very pulpit and from other places. And I also see the same pattern among many of you who are also... Uh, more spiritually mature. So as an overview of the whole letter so far, we learn of these various different themes. We learn of the prerogative of God. That is to say, he has 
the power and the authority, the prerogative of God in calling and gifting sinful people by his grace and by his mercy. And we also learn about the Christian life in the light of truth of Jesus. We learn about the power of God in the coming of Christ the first time. And we learn about the power of God in the punishment of rebels and false teachers. These are important themes. Uh, the power of God also in the rescuing and preserving of those whom he saves. And let's just remember, it's, it's not that he saves the good and damns the bad. It is that we are all bad and that we all deserve damnation. But out of his grace alone, God saves an elect few, a chosen number. And because of that, we also have promises of God. And so we learn about the promises of God in the prophets and the prophecies that have come true and also that have not yet come true but will come true. And we can be sure of that because they are in the scriptures and we can read them and understand them. Okay? So I have a number of takeaways for us today that if you don't really remember anything else, I, I want you to know these things. Okay? Number one, false teachers are evil, and Peter is totally against them. Okay? Number two, truth versus falsehood can be known. Okay? There is such a thing as truth, and there is such a thing as falsehood. True theology and false theology, true worldview and false worldviews, and true teaching and false teaching. Third, the best way to perceive falsehood is to compare it to what is true. The Bible is true. We need to study and understand it in order to know and believe what God already knows and he, what he wants us to know. And lastly, you can tell a false teacher not just by their teaching, but actually by their lives and by their fruit. So those are our takeaways for today, and we'll revisit them throughout our sermon today. Okay? Number one on your outline, the rise of false teachers. So in Chapter 2, verse 1, we read this. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is is not asleep. Okay, so false prophets also rose among the people. The Israelites, that is to say the Jews, were the chosen people of God. And the Old Testament, or what we call the Hebrew Scriptures, gives us a history of the Hebrew people all the way through until uh, the, the, the time of Jesus. Okay? So false prophets also arose among those people, just as there were also true prophets, and the true prophets, their words are written down in the Hebrew scriptures for us. But false prophets also rose among the people. And then Peter provides an, a parallel. Just as false teachers will also arise among you. Okay? Jesus, John, Jude, the, letter, the, writer of the, uh, the, le the writer of the letter of Hebrews, all join Peter in warning against false teaching or being deceived. Almost all of the books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 
Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Timothy, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, 1, 2, 3 John, Jude, Revelation. Okay, 27 books, and maybe four of them did a quick review. Maybe four of them sort of don't explicitly or impl implicitly talk about false teaching. They all contain at least one warning about false teaching, and in the, the case of 2 Peter, it's a major theme, or at least one admonition to hold fast to true doctrine. Okay, So if you're wondering, I, I, you can look at it, uh, Philemon, maybe James, 1 Peter, 3 John, 2 John maybe. Uh, those are the ones that don't. But everything else, the, the New Testament, and therefore God, is obsessed with true teaching and true doctrine. So it behooves us as people who call Jesus our Lord to know these things as well. All right. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. All right. We need to unpack this phrase. Okay. Secretly introduce destructive uh, uh, heresies. Here's how one commentator put it. These false teachers come in undercover. They bring in heresies privately or secretly. It is never customary for teachers of error to declare and oppose the truth openly in the beginning. As a rule, they work in an underhanded way, seeking to gain the confidence of God's people before they make known their real views. Such false teachers often hide their doctrinal peculiarities by using orthodox terms to which, however, they attach altogether different meaning than what is ordinarily accepted. So, what is false? What is false? Well, we define what is false by what is true. When we, um, when I learned about this, I, I just thought it was so fascinating that bank tellers, people who work in banks, they're trained to uh, identify counterfeit currency by handling real currency. They just handle it. They count it over and over and over again. They're, they're they count, count, count. Have you ever been to the bank and they're, they're counting out dollar bills? They're really fast at it. Why? Because they've been trained at it. And because they've been trained at it, because they look at it, because they feel it, they know how it feels, they know how it looks, they know how it smells, they, when a counterfeit comes by, it's, it's really easy for them to tell. They can probably just glance at it and know that it's counterfeit. Now, you or I might not know that, but bank tellers, they do know that. How do they know the counterfeits? Not by studying all the different counterfeits that there could be, but rather by handling what is true. So likewise, we want to really understand this in order to then be able to identify counterfeits. Identify counterfeits. All right, so this has lots of applications, not just in biblical teaching, but also in uh, just all, everyday seeing things that we know, uh, that, that we experience, and that sometimes are not going to be true. When, uh, when we go to the movies or something like that, my family and I like to play a game called uh, Spot the Lie. Okay? Spot the Lie. And so when we, especially like Disney movies, right, or Star Wars movies, things like that, right, you spot the lie. And I'm not talking about like nitpicking, you know, sort of like the plot inconsistencies and that sort of thing. I'm talking about like a worldview issue. So if you watch Star Wars, oh, the Force is this impersonal thing. It flows throughout, blah, blah, blah. Right? How is that not true? How is that not a worldview? How is that a, a science fiction make-believe worldview? How is that panentheism? 
talk, we talk about that. So it's, it's spot the lie. You know, uh, when, uh, you know, so-and-so princess says, follow your heart, how is that a lie? Right? How, is, how is that not true? Don't, don't follow your heart because the, the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That is what the scriptures teach. So don't follow your heart. Okay. I'd love to see like a little pink t-shirt with, you know, follow your heart in like flowery writing and then like a big don't on top of it. That'd be funny. So what is false? We, we understand what is false by what is true. So let me preach to you then the true gospel. And the true gospel is that Jesus died for our sin. We worship a God who is one God in three persons. One God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, omniscient, uh, omnipresent, totally holy, completely loving, 100% perfect, unchanging, unchangeable. Lots of different ways that we can de uh, describe and what we understand him in terms of his attributes. He is one God, but also one God in three persons. And these three persons are the Father, God the Father, the Son, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each of these is co-eternal with each other and all part of the one triune God. Okay, this is what we call the Trinity. God created the universe and everything in it, including the pinnacle of creation, human beings. Okay? He created us perfect. We are creations, not divine. And he gave us commands to follow. But Adam and Eve sinned when they willfully decided to disobey God. Okay? God had designed them never to die, but in the moment that they rebelled, they started dying and eventually would die. And because this is the way heredity works, every human being who has ever been born since then, including all of us in this room, including all of us outside, including all of us watching online or listening to a recording of this. Every single human being who's ever been born, I'll make a notable exception to this, has been born sinful. And because of that, we cannot not sin. We all incur a debt that we cannot pay because God is holy and he cannot abide sin. So what is the solution? The solution is that God himself has to reconcile us to him. And he does this. God the Father does this by sending, at the right moment in history, God the Son, who is God from all eternity, to take on another nature besides his God nature, a human nature. The man, Jesus of Nazareth. Who is the exception I just talked about? Who was not born sinful, but was born sinless. And he has a dual nature, both fully human and also fully God. Not merely God, but also man, and not merely man, but also God. Two natures unified in one person. He lived a perfect holy life that we could never live. And he died on the cross as a pun as to take our punishment, to pay the debt that we owe because we can never pay off our debt. Has any of you ever been in such bad debt, credit card debt, or some other kind of debt that you couldn't ever possibly pay it off. I've personally helped and counseled uh, people who have been tens of thousands of dollars in debt. And I know that there are people who are hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt who 
might actually pay them off because you know, maybe that was student loan debt and it was a good investment and you were able to then make enough money and pay off your student loans. Okay? But there is some debt that just can't ever be paid off and that's just the financial stuff. So what do you do? You go, you declare bankruptcy and then you know, your creditors give you some, uh, some break on that. But not so with God. Because you can never work your way out of debt with God. But God is gracious. God is gracious. So he says, I am going to take on this debt. And I'm going to put it on my son. And the son says, I am going to take on your debt. Put it on me. And as it says in the scriptures, he takes that certificate of debt. And he nails it to the cross. And that debt is canceled. And all you have to do is to rem- is to Come to Jesus. Come to God through Christ the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and be forgiven. That is the gospel. And on top of that, Jesus rose out on the third day. He rose after being dead and and was resurrected to life. And he ascended to heaven and is now at the right hand of the Father where he waits to come back, which is another theme of 2 Peter. And this is also good news because God is patient with us so that there it can be the multiple tellings and preachings of the gospel. And God in his time will work all these things out. But don't delay, my friends. Don't delay. Come to Jesus now. Be forgiven. And you can have everlasting life in Christ our Lord. Because when he came back to life resurrected. It was a promise of our own resurrection. We are going to die. We are going to get old. We are going to get sick. We spoke earlier of COVID. I have like a minor malady right now. I was complaining about to somebody, my back kind of hurts. It's a little tweaked. All of that is eventually going to break down. We're going to get gray hairs. Our eyes are going to go bad. We are eventually going to die and just decompose. But if we are in Christ, if we believe in Jesus, we will be resurrected again. And we will live in bodies that will never grow old, never get sick, never die, and best of all, never, ever again sin. Because as my eyes go bad, as my back goes bad, as my hair goes gray, as I get covid whatever, maybe uh, recover, maybe not, then nonetheless, even though my body is perishing, my soul is alive, everlasting. That is good news. And it's available to everyone who believes. So you need to come to it and believe it. Now, that is what we call the good news, the gospel. And the Apostle Paul writes that if anyone even an angel preaches a different gospel than that, then he is to be accursed. So that is false teaching. That is false teaching. False teaching would be, I I can't even talk about all the various different counterfeits that there are, because it would take too much time. Time would fail us. But counterfeit teaching, false teaching, is that you can earn your way to God, that you can uh, be... uh, uh, reincarnated, or that uh, 
you know, all people go to heaven or that we all go back into the, the sea of divinity of which we are just drops or whatever it is. Right? That is not true. There is one God and there is one man, Christ Jesus, who is an intercessor for us. And there is only one name that we have been given under heaven by which we must be saved. That is the name Jesus. It's very exclusive. It is a little controversial. It's frankly fairly offensive. But it is the exclusive truth. So we need to know it, love it, learn it, live it, and share it with the people that we love. So, on the other hand, what does Peter say? Destructive heresies. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Okay, the definition of heresy is any belief or practice that is contrary to the officially held beliefs. Any belief or practice that is contrary to the officially held beliefs. Now, for us Christians, we generally think of heresy as being contrary to very core doctrines. Okay, the core doctrines. Like I said, the nature of God, the triunity of God, uh, that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, is both fully God and fully man, that man's nature now is inherently sinful, that salvation from sin is necessary, and that works cannot achieve salvation. We cannot earn salvation. We cannot obligate God to save us by anything that we do. Uh, that belief in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection is the only basis for salvation. And that repentance from sin, in other words, turning from our sin and becoming more and more godly and less and less sinful, is a fruit of salvation. Not how we earn salvation, but how we show that we have been saved. And we hold these beliefs in a closed fist. We cannot let those go. As the scriptures put it, we hold fast these beliefs. Now, other beliefs we can disagree about. So, for example, it's not heresy to believe different things about baptizing babies and young children versus baptizing believing adults. Okay? It's not heresy to believe that local church decisions should be made at the local level or maybe that they should be uh, made at a larger um, organizing level of churches. That's not heresy. It's not heresy to believe that uh, in a certain order of events relating to the second coming of Jesus. Okay? We disagree about these things with our brothers, but we, it's not necessarily it's not heresy. Okay? And to be clear, we think that there are answers to these questions, and we study them here from the pulpit. We study them here in the Bible Institute. We study them in the Welcome Home class. But to disagree about them is not heresy. We should disagree charitably, but they're not history. heresy. But there is heresy. There is heresy that says that God is one God, but only one person. That's, that's heresy. Okay? It's heresy to believe lots of other things about Jesus and, and his nature, that he's not fully divine, that he's not the same substance, as we call it, as God the Father. That's an ancient heresy and still held by people like the Jehovah's Witnesses today. Uh, it's heresy to believe that, um, that it's not one God in three persons, but many gods in however many persons, which is what the Mormons believe. There's a lot of other false teachers out there, and like I said, time will fail me if I try to go into or uh, explain all of the things that they, they hold um, falsely. But they are some of the more well-known names that we 
see on the internet, see on uh, so-called Christian TV, uh, read about, uh, see their books on the shelves of, uh, of so-called Christian bookstores, right? Paula White, Joyce Meyer, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, T.D. Jakes, Bill Johnson, Joel Osteen, right? false teachers. I'm calling them out by name because the scriptures call out false teachers by name. Hymenaeus and Alexander and other people like that. Now, there's a number of signs of false teachers. We read about this in 2 Peter. Of course, there's unorthodox teaching. But also, there's some other fruit, which is like free morality. Their morality is not biblical. Right? They also tend to have great popularity. That's an issue. Not necessarily an issue, but it could be a sign. Their evangelism is weak. And they have suspect motives. Lots of different ways in which we can tell false teachers. But the best way to tell truth from falsehood is just to know the truth really, really well. So I want to encourage and exhort all of us here who call Jesus our Lord to really get to know the Word of God by studying and reading it all the time. On that side note, I especially loved Landon's prayer this morning after he finished singing because he brought in Augustine, who was a great church father, and he, and he preached the, uh, sorry, he prayed the the scriptures in the middle of his prayer, right? I just love that. It's, it's such a good way to pray is to, is to pray through the scriptures and to, to use the language of the Bible in our own prayers to God. So good. Okay, then we read, even denying the master who bought them. All right, even denying the master who bought them. This is a very difficult phrase to understand. So what does it mean? Okay. You might recall that Peter, being a follower of Jesus, uh, infamously denied Jesus three times before Jesus was crucified. Peter was ashamed about that. So even though Jesus was gracious and forgave Peter, and Peter was subsequently shown to never deny Jesus ever again, even to the death, to his death by martyrdom, it might have been an emotional thing for Peter to write. So he might have been thinking about the time that he denied Jesus when he wrote this. Now, to deny is the opposite of to affirm or to believe. To affirm says, I am with Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. I believe in Jesus. And to deny says, I am not with Jesus. Jesus is not my Lord. I don't believe in Jesus. Now, there are plenty of people who don't believe in Jesus, and they're willing to just tell us that. That's totally fine. The problem is you can affirm with your words that you believe in Jesus, but deny with your heart and with your actions. And it's pretty clear from the context of this chapter that even if the false teachers claim to be followers of Jesus, they deny him with their teachings and certainly with their actions and their lifestyle. Okay? Denying the master. Master, the Greek word here is despotes. Despotes. That sounds a lot like our English word despot. Now, this is different from the word that we usually associate with Christ, which is Lord or Kyrios in the Greek. Now, the title Lord primarily means the one in authority, whereas master or despotist implies ownership. For example, the ownership of slaves. Now, there's no denying that God owns everything, the universe and everything in it, including us. That's a clear teaching from Scripture. For example, Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Okay. 
That's because God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. Now, it would be easier if Peter just said simply here, denying the master. But to, to say, to even denying the master who bought them, now that raises a serious question, a difficult question. In what sense did God the master buy the false teachers who are clearly going to hell? Because if the master buys you, that seems to mean that you are saved. For example, Acts 28.20 says that the church of God is purchased by the blood of Jesus. All right, so what does it mean, denying the master who bought them? It can't mean, can't mean this. It can't mean that if you deny Jesus as Lord, if you deny that you must believe in him for the salvation of your sins, you're saved anyway. That is clearly the opposite of what the Bible teaches in other places. This is called universalism, okay? and it violates the exclusivity of Jesus the only way, the only truth, the only light. It cannot also mean that Jesus bought the false teachers with his blood, but in denying Jesus, they can reject their salvation. Okay? This would violate the doctrine of God's sovereignty and power. What do you mean? That I am more powerful than God because even though God wants to save me and has actually made the purchase with Jesus' blood, that I can say, no thanks, and walk away? God's power and sovereignty and his prerogative in calling and choosing those who are elect, he's more powerful than us. We can't, we can't reject our salvation. The Bible clearly teaches that God chooses whom he is going to save. He saves them, and he will hold them fast all the way to heaven. Jesus said, not one of the ones that you have given me have gone away. The best answer of what this means is, is that the false teachers seemed to be part of the saved community that was bought by Christ, but later it becomes clear that they never were. Okay? This is consistent with the end of the chapter, verses 20, 21, 22, which talks about the false teachers seeming to escape sin, but then getting entangled and overcome by sin, like a dog going back to its own vomit or a pig going back into the mud. Okay? It is consistent with Jesus saying that many will prophesy in his name, cast out demons in his name, perform miracles in his name, but on judgment day, Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Not, I knew you once, and then I didn't, but I never knew you. Okay? It's consistent with 1 John 2.9, which says of former Christians, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. Okay, so what's the result? Bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Swift here meaning uh, unexpected and sudden rather than imminent. Okay? So there's a lot of false teachers out there. There have been throughout the centuries, and it's been 2,000 years. You know, God does what he's going to do with them. So it's unexpected and sudden, but not necessarily right this minute. So, for example, if I spoke a false teaching right this minute, he wouldn't just strike me down. I mean, he could strike me down, right? He could totally do that. But he generally doesn't do that from what we see from the Internet and publishers. All right, verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality. All right, sensuality means lacking moral restraints. Lacking any restraint on your morality. And it usually relates to sex. Okay? 
leading to outrageous behavior. Sensual in our modern usage is just sort of like relating to the senses, it's gratification, indulgence of physical appetites, that's totally that, but it, our, our current use doesn't capture the total negative of this word, sensuality, okay? All right, this, the, the word sensuality, by the way, is the same word that is used to describe Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 2-7 and also in verse 2-18. All right, because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Maligned meaning blaspheme. Okay? In our jargon, we call this being a bad witness. Okay? In Peter's day, the false Christians' greediness towards sex or money would have negative effect on the public image of true, Christian, true Christianity. And that's no less true in our day. When you are a bad witness because of sensuality, drunkenness, greed, uh, false teaching, being super angry with people, like on the internet or whatever, like that's a bad witness. No one's going to follow you if you are that kind of person. No one's going to believe even if you speak the true gospel. Right? The way of the truth will be maligned. Verse 3, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Now this is such a hallmark of the prosperity gospel, right? If you give money to me as an offering, God will multiply your financial blessings in return to you. Buy this anointing oil or this blessed handkerchief or this book, right? God told me he's going to take my life if you don't give me enough money to buy a gold Learjet, things like that. I mean, you would think that it's so ridiculous as not to be believed, but people get enticed by these kind of things. So in their greed, we see that false teachers exploit the weak with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Ah, so God will punish evildoers, even if it seems to take a long time. And here is the logic. The logic came from uh, our last sermon, last Sunday, which is this, this next really long compound sentence that uh, spans verses 4 through 10. And the, I won't read the whole thing, but the basic idea is that if God dis, did not spare angels but cast them into hell, and if God did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, okay, and if God condemned Sodom and Gomorrah and rescued Lot, then the conclusion, the logic is, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment. Okay? And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Okay? We uh, explored this uh, passage in quite some depth last Sunday, and so I don't want to do that again uh, this Sunday. Okay, now, I guess that was just the introduction. All right, number one, Roman number one on your outline, the ministers of false teaching, the ministers of false teaching. Starting with this next paragraph in my, in my Bible, but the second half of verse 10. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. So this word daring is what I seized on just to have a title for my sermon, Truth or Daring. Okay? It's, it's a play on the kids' game, Truth or Dare. 
I, I'm sure you're all familiar with it, where you ask your friends, okay, truth or dare, and they tell you, okay, they choose a truth or dare, and you then they have to tell you the truth of a question that you ask them, or they have to perform the thing that you dare them to do, right? Truth or dare. But in this case, it's false teacher. Teachers are going to give you the truth, or they're going to give you, or they're they're going to be daring, okay? And it's, that dare is not going to work out well for them. Daring, self-willed, they, tr they do not tremble. Okay, when they revile angelic majesties. Reviling is blaspheming, okay? Blaspheming is saying something bad about something, especially some, uh, something or someone powerful or holy. Okay, so this is, again, an, a difficult phrase to interpret. And the meaning depends on what angelic majesties means. Probably it means fallen angels or demons. Fallen angels or demons. Not good angels, okay? Uh, last week we talked about angels who are still with God and then fallen angels, uh, also known as demons. This probably means fallen angels or demons because, uh, not only because it's a different word than the word angels, but it could also just mean, uh, it could also just mean holy angels. So this, this sentence means one of two things. It could mean, the false teachers are not afraid to blaspheme angels, even though angels that are mightier than humans do not condemn false teachers. Or it could mean the false teachers are not afraid to blaspheme demons, even though angels that are mightier than humans do not condemn demons. It's probably the latter. Okay, So it's probably talking about false teachers daringly condemning demons, even demons. Because the contrast is that even angels don't do that. Okay? And in Jude, which we read at the beginning of service, Jude says that uh, even the archangel Michael didn't do this. He said, the Lord rebuke you. So he's saying, God rebuke you, not I rebuke you. Okay? So it's taking a place that you sh shouldn't be taken. And even worse from that, they don't know what they're talking about. So two on your outline, deservedly destroyed, which is uh, verses 12 and 13. But these, like unreasoning, unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. All right, this is the first of four animal references in this chapter, and they are used to portray the false teachers negatively. The idea behind calling them unreasoning creatures of instinct is that they are going to suffer the same fate as animals that are hunted or slaughtered. They are going to be destroyed. They're going to be destroyed. Now, this other phrase, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, is actually not the best translation, uh, according to folks that I've read, because I don't read Greek, but I rely on godly men who have studied these things and, and understand them. So in my reading and in my research and preparation, suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong might not actually be the best translation. A better translation is suffering the loss of the wages of unrighteousness because the Greek words are exactly the same in 2.15, the wages of unrighteousness that Balaam, the false prophet, loved. 
Okay, so the false teachers are going to lose whatever monetary gain they thought they gained. <coughs> Excuse me. Or it could also mean that they get the just punishment as wages for the wrong that they do. Okay? Not suffering wrong as in God is going to commit moral wrong against them. It's just that they're suffering loss. Okay? Suffering loss as, as a result of them suffering, uh, doing wrong. All right, so that's that phrase. Shamelessly stained, verse 13 and 14. They, the false teachers, count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, a reveling is very hard partying, okay? And as we know, usually this kind of revelry takes place at night because it's more shameful to party during the day. Okay? Darkness usually hates the light. Moral darkness hates the light. But shameless darkness doesn't even mind exposing itself in the light. The thing that I kind of think about, um, which I haven't experienced, don't really know all that much about, frankly, but you know it's a thing in our culture, is Burning Man. Okay? If you know anything about Burning Man, I googled a few pictures of it. It looks like just out-and-out -out debauchery. And it's sad uh, and terrible. Okay? So th this is kind of what I think about when I, when I see this. They count it as a pleasure to revel in the daytime, just out-and-out -out moral degradation and debauchery in the daytime. So, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse at you is openly celebrating the fact that they are tricking people. Haha, <laughs> I totally got them. Stains and blemishes. This is a biblical metaphor for sin. Very common. Stains and blemishes. Biblical metaphor. Right? Eyes full of adultery can literally be translated as eyes that long for an adulteress. Okay? I'm just looking for it. I really want it looking for it. I've got eyes full of adultery. That's, that's them. Okay? All right? And they don't stop. Uh, enticing unstable souls. Now, a very similar phrase is in verse 18. So let's, let's save that for verse 18 when we talk about verse 18. But they have hearts trained in greed. Okay? Now, we fallen human beings are naturally greedy. Okay? Naturally greedy. Just watch little kids. They don't have to be taught to be greedy. They just want to grab. There's this really funny internet video of the kid, a little baby, got to be, I don't know, nine months old or something, maybe less, uh, eating ice cream for the first time. Has a little bite of ice cream. Eyes get really wide and then grabs the whole ice cream cone and shoves it in his face. It is hilarious. You should watch it. But you don't have to teach that little baby. That baby doesn't even know how to talk about how to be greedy. The kid just grabbed the ice cream, shoved it in his face. Okay? Now, trained in greed is a whole level beyond. Right? It's being a Jedi master of greed. Right? Trained to be an expert in greed. Even greedier than we naturally are. That is a scary level of greed. And accursed children. Accursed children is an idiom that classes people together. Okay? Different groups in the, in the Bible are called 
children of wrath. That would be the ones that are still not saved. Or children of light. That would be those who are saved. Okay? This is children of a curse. Accursed children. Okay? So Peter is not pulling any punches. He's not trying to be nice about anything. Everything about the false teachers is bad, is what he's saying. And then in verse 15, he writes this. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey, speaking with a voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. So if you were here with us last Sunday, I didn't quite get to this one. It is, uh, it is lesson four from redemptive history. The last sermon was called Lessons from Redemptive History. This is the fourth lesson, okay? And it goes back to Numbers uh, chapters 22 to 24 in the Torah, right? We're not going to read, um, you know, all of it. It's three full chapters. We don't have time for that, okay? But what is going on in Balaam's bad example? So if we looked at uh, Numbers 22, and, and kids and teachers from kids' church would know some of the basics of this story, right? The grand army of Israel is on the march to conquer the promised land. One of the enemies hires, uh, enemies of Israel hires a prophet named Balaam to curse the Israelite army because with God on their side and indeed with God fighting the battles for them, the Israelites are unstoppable, right? Now, this prophet Balaam gets paid a lot of money to sell out the Israelites. Okay, that's, that would be the wages of unrighteousness. And on his way to cursing them, he is riding his donkey, and an angel that he can't see, but the donkey can see, blocks the way. Okay? Because the donkey can see the angel, he stops. So Balaam, of course, starts beating the donkey, because when your donkey doesn't go, you beat the donkey so that it will start going. So, then the angel reveals himself to Balaam. Uh, sorry. Then the donkey actually is given a voice by, by God and says, why are you beating me? I, I've never treated you badly. And then the angel reveals himself to Balaam and tells him that if it weren't for the donkey refusing to go forward, the angel would have killed Balaam. That's a rebuke for your own transgression. That is what is going on in Numbers 22, 23, 24, right? So Numbers 22, 1 through 21, king of Moab hires the prophet Balaam to curse Israel. And Balaam, he, he at first says no, but essentially he's holding out for more money. Okay? Second half of 22, God sends an angel to block Balaam. Uh, and then God, like I just said, empowers the donkey to speak to Balaam. He keeps going. Chapter 23, Balaam blesses instead of curses Israel. Three times he does this. Now you might read that and you think, well, if Balaam knows that he can only speak the words that God is going to give him to speak, and he does that three times, and in fact he blesses Israel and doesn't curse Israel, how is that being a bad prophet? Balaam then prophecies that Israel will actually conquer the surrounding nations. And the guy who hired him says, what are you doing? I've hired you to curse Israelite, and you've cursed me instead, and you've blessed them. Like, they're going to win based on what you're saying. Balaam's like, sorry, I, I can only say what God is telling me to say. So how do we know that he's bad? 
How do we know that he's a false prophet? Because the false prophecy, because of, of what the scriptures say about all of that. Let's then read what happens to uh, Balaam uh, and Israel in the next chapter, chapter 25, in the first few verses. Okay? I'm not going to read it. I'm just reading this bullet point. Israel then sinfully worships the false Moabite Baal of Peor. And God punishes them with a plague that kills 24,000. The reason why they did that is because Balaam, even though he had to say those particular prophecies, he also advised the king of Moab how to undermine the Israelites. And he basically did it by telling them to seduce the Israelites. Okay? Right? That is what is going on. Okay? Peter's point of using Balaam as an example, is that the false teachers of his day and of our day go after the exact same things. Money, which Balaam wanted to keep, he loved the wages of unrighteousness, and sex, which is what Balaam told the Moabites to go and do. Okay? The two main idols of that age, money and sex, and also of our age, money and sex, and really of any age. So what are the ministries, we say then? Oh, let's, uh, let's actually go and talk about a little bit uh, what, what happens. Uh, Numbers 38, uh, 31.8, and, and actually Joshua 13.22, uh, talk about how they, and is, that is to say an Israelite task force, not the whole army, but a thousand from each tribe, went and killed Balaam with the sword. Okay, so they found him, they executed him. He's an enemy of the people. Uh, he, he's, he's a war criminal. Uh, Numbers 31.16 says, Moses said to them, this is what we know, Behold, these, that is to say Moabite women, caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And Peor, if you remember, is Baal of Peor. Okay, so that's a, it's a local false god. So in the matter of Peor. Okay, through the counsel of Balaam. All right. Much later on, in Deuteronomy, and then in Nehemiah. Okay? Nehemiah is hundreds of years later. But in Deuteronomy, we read this. That no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord, because they hired you against Balaam, hired against you, Balaam, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because... The Lord your God loves you. Israel sinned, but God was gracious. God was gracious. And in Nehemiah, which is you know hundreds of years later, on that day they read aloud from the book of Moses, that is to say Deuteronomy, that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they hired Balaam against them to curse them. So who are the Ammonites and the Moabites? Well, this is actually goes back to one of the lessons from redemptive history from last week, which is to say that the Ammonites and the Moabites are related to Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, which we studied last week. Okay? Genesis 19, going back to the end of the Sodom and Gomorrah story, says that the, both the daughters of Lot, who were the only three people to escape Sodom and Gomorrah, because okay, Lot's wife got turned into a pillar of salt, she wanted to stay, she looked back, she was punished. And 
these two daughters, future, uh, uh, their future husbands, they didn't want to go. They thought, Lot was, uh, they, they thought Lot was joking. Lot and his two daughters, but his two daughters were not godly people either. They committed incest with their father. The firstborn daughter bore a son, Moab. He is the father of all the Moabites to this day, which is you know, you know, quite some time later. And the younger one bore a son, Ben-Ami, the father of the sons of Ammonites to this day. So kind of a fun fact, who are the ones who were hiring Balaam? It is the same people who were a product of this other sin. And that's generally how we find out, uh, how we learn that things are evil in the Hebrew Scriptures. Not because it comments that was evil, but rather what is the fruit of all of those actions you know, at a future time. So, what then is the ministry, oh, sorry, uh, I, I keep wanting to, to skip ahead, and I am not going to do that because this is the third time. In Second Peter is the third time that we read about Balaam. There's two other times in Jude 11 and Revelation 2.14 that we uh, hear about Balaam. And in Jude 11, we say, Woe to them, the false teachers, for they have gone the way of Cain. They for pay the wages of unrighteousness. They have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So Jude, just like Peter does, sort of like skips over all of these uh, uh, ancient stories from the Hebrew Scriptures without explaining them because he just assumes that the readers know what he's talking about. So because we might not, that's why we need to have entire sermons about them. But we don't have, to, we don't have time to talk about Cain uh, and, and about Korah but we learned about Balaam, all right? And in Revelation 2.14, one of the warnings to the churches in Revelation says, I, this is Jesus talking, I have a few things against you, this particular church, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak, the king of Moab, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. What was the, what was the stumbling block? Good-looking Moabite women, okay? Stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Okay. So the teaching of Balaam, the counsel of Balaam, is a bad thing. The, the, prophecies, the, the prophecies of false prophets, the teachings of false teachers are, are very bad. All right. Now, Roman numeral two on your outline, the ministries of false teachers. And we'll wrap this up relatively quickly. The ministries of false teachers uh, in verses 17, 18, and 19. In verse 17, we read, These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. We read about black darkness in Jude as well. Okay? Now, water is the main ingredient for life. You have no water, you have no life. So springs without water would be a great disappointment, to say the least, in dry desert conditions. And mists driven by storm is water that is not productive. It's just, it's just a storm whipped this way and that, and you can feel the moisture on your face, but it doesn't actually water the ground so as to bring forth crops. Okay? This is what false teachers are. They're empty, not productive. Not like Jesus, the true and living water that satisfies thirst forever. Okay? Okay? The black darkness has been reserved. That's hell. Enticement, uh, number two on your outline in verse 18. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape 
the ones from the ones who live in error. Again, this is a, a difficult uh, phrase to uh, interpret, but it, it means this. It basically means this. They have overblown pride as they try to impress with their grand talk. Okay, overblown pride as they try to impress with grand talk. And you know, if you think about who we see on the internet and on TV these days, uh, I'm sure you can come up with lots of different examples. Okay, um, entice. Now this is the same word that we saw in verse 14. Now uh, the word entice is related to uh, bait. It's in it's it's related to a lure for fishing. Peter was a fisherman. So to entice is to draw somebody in, enticed by fleshly desires. So instead of a worm on a hook, you've got fleshly desires, and this is how they're going to entice us. Now these fleshly desires, this sensuality that we talked about, it, it all uh, is, is one phrase which uh, has also been called licentiousness. And like I said before, this is lacking moral restraints. Lacking moral restraints leading to outrageous behavior, usually of a sexual nature. Okay. It's the same as in verse 2 and Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7 of chapter 2. Trying to entice, trying to seduce. Okay, Trying to seduce who? Um, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. The ones who live in error are the unsaved, and those who barely escape are new converts, okay, but weak, right? People who are trying to better themselves, but maybe not necessarily redeemed, says John MacArthur in his commentary. Uh, it's really the same group as the unstable souls from verse 14, okay? They're still unstable because they are not firmly founded. So in verse 19, it's, it goes on and says, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption by, because for, uh, what a man, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Now it could mean, this could mean the true freedom that Jesus actually promised. He came to set the captives free or a false freedom to do whatever it is that you want. That would be a false freedom. And, and the, the scriptures talk about uh, in many different places, for example, Romans 6, um, a false freedom to do whatever you want. Shall we then continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. Okay. Now, the freedom we have in Christ is actually slavery to Christ, the good and perfect master who bought us. Okay. So it's actually good. So it's, it's ironic. It's, it's, it's you know, uh, just... Seemingly self-contradictory, but actually a beautiful truth that in becoming slaves to Christ, we actually achieve our greatest level of freedom. Uh, this is very likely a false sense of freedom. Okay, so then another commentator wrote this. The target group of this will be gullible Christians who are either so new or so untaught as to be unstable, as in verse 14. The offer will be of true freedom, perhaps carrying the implication that the New Testament message that converted them did not truly liberate them, that freedom will operate in two areas, okay? Here's the two areas. Freedom to think their own thoughts so that they don't need to submit to the authority of the apostles and the promise of the return of Christ. 
And secondly, freedom for self-expression. Because everything, including the lustful desires of sinful human nature, is to be affirmed. Okay? Freedom to think their own thoughts and freedom for self-expression, or what we might call now freedom of what? Self-identification. Identify myself as this or that, even though I'm not really those things. The whole package will be wrapped in empty, boastful words. This probably means that although it will sound attractive, closer examination will reveal a gap between, on one hand, what these people claim publicly for their relationship with God, and on the other, their private self-indulgence. A non-judgmental ethic and an open-ended theology will be on offer to immature Christians who do not know enough to refuse it and cannot see the selfishness masquerading as spirituality. I thought this really captured well uh, the enticing, unstable souls. So that is why we want to be well-grounded in good, accurate, truthful teaching. And not just sort of like, oh, you know, like I have a childlike faith, but I don't read this ever, you know, right? That's not okay. It's going to cause problems. All right. So corruption in uh, in verse 14. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Corruption uh, uh, in this verse, slaves of corruption, um, is, is ironic because in there's, They're promising freedom, and it's ironic because there's the promise since they themselves are actually slaves. And also, what it says here, by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved, this appears to be an ancient proverb. And it actually refers to a military defeat, right? Because if you lose a battle or war, you become the slaves of the conquering army. In this case, if you are defeated by sin, you're enslaved by sin. By what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. All right. Now, the closing of the verse is, uh, the chapter rather, is the madness of false teachers. The madness of false teachers. Verse 20, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world. All right, this again is a, just a difficult uh, phrase to interpret. It's related to the phrase in verse 1, deny the master who bought them, right? Many argue that this is proof, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, this is proof that you can be a genuine saved Christian and then lose your salvation. And the main reason why we know that this is not true is because so much of Scripture contradicts this. So the escape must be temporary. It it only seemed like they escaped. And since we are uh, talking about a whole class of people, false teachers, who are clearly condemned in the eternal sense, This escape cannot be the same kind of escape that the truly saved Christians experienced. Right? Right? So, for example, in in 1 Peter 1, verse 4, he says, uh, He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So in that verse, he's talking to people that are truly saved and have truly escaped. But in this verse, he's talking about uh, like sort of like a, a seeming escapement, uh, a seeming escape. Okay, all right. And the main idea is this: if God is sovereign, and if we are saved by God's grace alone, and and also if we do nothing to earn our own salvation, then 
we can also do nothing to lose our salvation. God is in control. He will hold us fast. Okay? That's if, of course, very big if, if we are truly saved. And that is why the scriptures tell us to be on the lookout for ourselves and for our doctrines, to test ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith. The scriptures tell us to hold fast to correct theology and to persevere and to overcome. Okay? If we do those things, our eternal mortal lives, that will be proof that we were saved the whole time. Not that we earn our salvation by not stopping and believing in Jesus, but that our salvation is proven by us holding fast and keeping the confession. Okay? Right? After they escape the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, since this is not permanent escape, it's, this also can't be true knowledge. So we talk about true knowledge in chapter 1. But this is not saving knowledge, but surface knowledge of Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not knowing Jesus, but knowing about Jesus, which is a really big different thing, isn't it? Right? They say sometimes that the difference between heaven and hell is 12 inches. What you know in your head versus what you believe in your heart. But we should always test ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith. That we don't, know, we don't simply merely know about Jesus, which any kid in kids' church will tell you about Jesus, but rather whether we know Jesus. And maybe more importantly, whether Jesus knows us. And, or whether Jesus never knew us. Okay? These are the warnings that are in Scripture for us. They are again entangled in them and overcome. This goes back to being enticed and enslaved. Okay? Then the last state has become worse for them than the first. And the basic idea here is that teachers, like myself, like Pastor Matt here, are held to a higher standard. James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. I'll tell you right now, standing here, that this, these words haunt my very being because it means that I need to know what I'm talking about here and actually believe it and then preach it truly. Okay? I am held to a stricter judgment. Okay? So the last state has become worse for them than the first. Right? Jesus speaks about the guy, uh, this is kind of another parallel, in Matthew chapter 12, who exorcises a demon. Right? Demons go out. But then more demons come in, right? The last state of that man, Jesus says, becomes worse than the first. This is the exact phrase. The exact phrase that Jesus used, Peter now reproduces it here in this verse. Okay. Verse 21, For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on down to them. Which holy commandment is this? Well, actually, it's a bit of a trick question because it's, it's all of this. Okay? It's all of this. Handed down the, all of the Hebrew scriptures, all of the scriptures, all of the God-breathed-out words of the scriptures. Okay? It's shorthand. The, the holy commandment is shorthand for the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's basically all that I have commanded you to observe. Okay? So in verse uh, in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus says this to, the, to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I commanded. This is the holy commandment handed down to them. Okay? The Great Commission actually covers all of the things that we've been talking about, all the three elements. Teaching them, not false teachers, true teachers. Okay? Teaching them to what? Observe, that is to say to obey. Okay? Not continue in sin, but to obey. All that I have commanded you, the entire counsel of God, right? the entire counsel of God, the holy counsel. And 22, it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit. That's Proverbs 26, 11, Peter is quoting. And a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. I mentioned that there were four animal references in here, and one is the, the first one was about being slaughtered. The second one was Balaam's donkey, and this is, these are the third and the fourth, the dog and the pig. Okay? The first proverb comes from, uh, like I said, Proverbs 26.11, and the other one was apparently a common saying at the time. Now, both dogs and pigs are considered unclean animals according to Jewish law, particularly pigs. Okay? You think about the the uh, parable of, the, um, uh, of the, the prodigal son. He was a Jew who then was like, you know, wallowing in the, and feeding the pigs and wanting the things that the pigs were even eating. So this, in other words, he had fallen to a very, very, very low state. So this is a really strong condemnation of false teachers, calling them dogs and pigs, not to mention what dogs and pigs do, right? This is actually... It, you know, culturally speaking, the harshest words yet in this whole chapter. So you think about all of the things that Peter was saying about the false teachers throughout this whole chapter, he really saves the best for the last in terms of calling them dogs and pigs. Okay. All right. So that is, that is chapter 2. And then we, we have these takeaways. We have these takeaways, which is that false teachers are evil. I hope I made that point. Uh, truth and falsehood. We have true theology on one hand, and we have a, a, a wide range of false, false theologies on the other hand. True worldview versus false worldviews, and true teaching versus many, many different flavors of false teaching. Um, to know falsehood, you must know the truth. You really need to be familiar with it. Okay? That is a key takeaway from today. And then false teachers can be known not just by their teaching, but also by their lifestyles and by their fruit. So um, the main thing that we want to teach, the main thing that I want to leave you with, the main thing that I want to, to be on your lips as you leave this place and as you log off from uh, being online and as, as you go from, from uh, joining us from outdoors is the good news, the good news of Jesus, the good news that Jesus died for our sins. And we are going to close the worship service with a declaration of that gospel through the taking of the Lord's Supper. That's what the Lord's Supper is, uh, and that is this little communion cup, right? On the night that he was betrayed, on the night that Jesus was betrayed and gave himself up for us, he took the bread and giving thanks for it, said, this body is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. So let us take the wafer and take this together. And likewise, 
the scripture says. After the meal, he took the cup and poured the wine. And he says, this wine is my blood given for you. Drink it in remembrance of me. So we think about and we remember the blood that Jesus spilled on the cross to buy us as his, he's the master and we are his possession. He bought for himself the church of Christ. So we drink this together. And in so doing, we declare the Lord's death until he comes back. Speaking of which, that is what we're going to be talking about uh, next week and the week after. The, the, the second coming of Jesus, uh, as Peter talks about in chapter 3. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this holy word, this holy commandment that you have given to us. We pray, dear God, that we would be on guard for ourselves and our doctrine and our lives, uh, our, our very own personal holiness, that we would watch ourselves, but then also, God, that we would watch out for false teaching. That while we, the church, especially we, the church in America, are so inundated with false teachers from every direction, so easily distracted from things, that we would be found faithful, that we would be found focused, that we would be found on our knees and with our eyes open in the scriptures, reading and understanding things, that we would not be lazy, but that we would be diligent to do these things, because in our diligence, you have granted us magnificent promises. May we believe these promises and hold them fast and share them with others. In the name of Jesus, we pray.